0: The Cosmic Void, onward it stretches into infinity, matched in depth and vastness, by but one thing, the human imagination. We present now a story from this, the greater of two endless realms. Join us as we enter A Gate Beyond. This week on A Gate Beyond, we present not one, but three very short stories Ranging in subject from bizarre nature to what happens when both wishes and magic go terribly wrong. Come into my parlor, said the spider to the fly. Such goes the old saying. Yet what if the fly is packing something decidedly unexpected? Such is the scenario that plays out in our first story this week. This is entitled The Fly by Arthur Forges. Shortly after noon, the man unslung his Geiger counter and placed it carefully upon a flat rock by a thick, inviting patch of grass. He listened to the faint, erratic background ticking for a moment, then snapped off the current. No point in running the battery down just to hear stray cosmic rays and residual radioactivity. So far, he'd found nothing potent, not a single trace of workable ore. Squatting, he unpacked an ample lunch of hard-boiled eggs, bread, fruit, and a thermos of black coffee. He ate hungrily, but with the neat, crumbless manners of an outdoorsman, and when the last bite was gone, stretched out, braced on his elbows to sip the remaining drops of coffee. It felt mighty good, he thought, to get off your feet after a six-hour hike through rough country. As he lay there, savoring the strong brew, his gaze suddenly narrowed and became fixed, Right before his eyes, artfully spun between two twigs and a small mossy boulder, cunning snare for the unwary spread its threads of wet silver in a network of death. It was the instinctive creation of a master designer, a nearly perfect logarithmic spiral stirring gently in a slight updraft. He studied it curiously, tracing with growing interest the special cable attached only at the ends that led from a silk cushion at the web's center up to a crevice in the boulder. He knew that the mistress of this snare must be hidden there, crouching with one hind foot on her primitive telegraph wire and awaiting those welcome vibrations which meant a victim thrashing hopelessly among the sticky threads. He turned his head desiring a proper angle, and soon found it. Deep in the dark crevice, the spider's eyes formed a sinister jeweled pattern. Yes, she was at home, patiently watchful. It was all very efficient, and in a reflective mood, drowsy from his exertions and a full stomach, he pondered the small miracle before him how a speck of protoplasm, a mere dot of white nerve tissue which was a spider's brain, had antedated the mind of Euclid by countless centuries. Spiders are an ancient race, ages before man wrought wonders through his subtle abstractions of points and lines. A spiral not to be distinguished from this one winnowed the breezes of some prehistoric summer. Then he blinked, his attention once more sharpened glowing gem, glistening metallic blue, had planted itself squarely upon the web. As if manipulated by a conjurer, Blue Beetle Fly had appeared from nowhere. It was an exceptionally fine specimen, he decided, large, perfectly formed, and brilliantly rich in hue. He eyed the insect wonderingly. Where was the usual panic, the frantic struggling, the shrill, terrified buzzing? It rested there with an odd indifference to restraint that puzzled him. There was at least one reasonable explanation. The fly might be sick or dying, prey of parasites. Fungi and the ubiquitous roundworms shattered the ranks of even the most fertile. So unnaturally still was this fly that the spider, wholly unaware of its feathery landing, dreamed on in her shaded lair then as he watched the blue bottle stupidly perverse gave a single sharp tug its powerful wings blurred momentarily and a high-pitched buzz sounded the man sighed almost tempted to interfere not that it would have mattered how soon the fly betrayed itself eventually the spider would have made a routine inspection and unlike most people, He knew her for a staunch friend of man, a tireless killer of insect pests. It was not for him to steal her dinner and tear her web. But now, silent and swift, a pea on eight hairy agile legs, she glided over her swaying net. An age-old tragedy was about to be enacted, and the man waited with pitying interest for the inevitable denouement. About an inch from her prey, the spider paused briefly, estimating the situation with diamond-bright, soulless eyes. The man knew what would follow. Utterly contemptuous of a mere fly, however large, lacking either sting or fangs, the spider would unhesitatingly close in, swathe the insect with silk, and drag it to her nest in the rock, there to be drained at leisure. But instead of a fearless attack, the spider edged cautiously nearer. She seemed doubtful, even uneasy. The fly's strange passivity apparently worried her. He saw the needle-pointed mandibles working, ludicrously suggestive of a woman wringing her hands in agonized indecision. Reluctantly, she crept forward. In a moment, she would turn about, squirt a preliminary jet of silk over the blue bottle, and, by dexterously rotating the fly with her hind legs, wrap it up in a gleaming shroud. And so it appeared, For satisfied with a closer inspection, she forgot her fears and whirled, thrusting her spinnerets toward the motionless insect. Then the man saw a startling and incredible thing. There was a metallic flash as a jointed, shining rod, stabbed from the fly's head like some fantastic rapier. It licked out with lightning precision, pierced the spider's plump abdomen, and remained extended, forming a terrible link between them. He gulped, tense with disbelief. A blue fly, a mere lapper of carrion, with an extensible sucking proboscis. It was impossible. Its tongue is only an absorbing cushion, designed for sponging up liquids. But then was this really a fly after all? Insects often mimic each other, and he was no longer familiar with such points. No, Bluebottle is unmistakable. Besides, this was a true fly, two wings and everything. Rusty or not, he knew that much. The spider had stiffened as the queer lance struck home. Now she was rigid, obviously paralyzed, and her swollen abdomen was contracting like a tiny fist as the fly sucked its juices through that slender, pulsating tube. He peered more closely, raising himself to his knees and longing for a lens. It seemed to his straining gaze as if that gruesome beak came not from the mouth region at all, through a minute hatch-like opening between the fasted eyes, with a nearly invisible square door ajar. But that was absurd. It must be the glare and... ah. Flickering, the rod retracted. There was definitely no such opening now. Apparently, the bright sun was playing tricks. The spider stood shriveled, pitiful husk, still upright on her thin legs. One thing was certain. He must have this remarkable fly. If not a new species, it was surely very rare. Fortunately, it was stuck fast in the web. Killing the spider could not help it. He knew the steely toughness of those elastic strands, each a tight helix filled with superbly tenacious gum. Very few insects, and those only among the strongest ever tear free. He gingerly extended his thumb and forefinger. Easy now. He had to pull the fly loose without crushing it. Then he stopped, almost touching the insect and staring hard. He was uneasy, a little frightened, A brightly glowing spot, brilliant even in the glaring sunlight, was throbbing on the very tip of the blue abdomen. A reedy, barely audible whine was coming from the trapped insect. He thought momentarily of fireflies, only to dismiss the notion with scorn for his own stupidity. Of course, a firefly is actually a beetle, and this thing was not that anyway. Excited, he reached forward again, but as his plucking fingers approached, the fly rose smoothly in a vertical ascent, lifting a pyramid of caught strands and tearing a gap in the web as easily as a flipped stone. The man was alert, however. He cupped his hand, nervously swift, snapped over the insect, and he gave a satisfied grunt. The captive buzzed in his grasp with a furious vitality that appalled him, and he yelped as a searing, slashing pain scalded the sensitive palm. Involuntarily, he relaxed his grip. There was a streak of electric blue as his prize soared, glinting in the sun. For an instant, he saw that odd glowworm tail light, a dazzling spark against the darker sky, then nothing. He examined the wound, swearing bitterly. It was purple, and already little blisters were forming. There was no sign of a puncture. Evidently, the creature had not used its lancet, merely spurted venom-like acid, perhaps, on the skin. Certainly, the injury felt very much like a bad burn. Damn and blast! He'd kicked away a real find, an insect probably new to science. And, with a little more care, he might have caught it. Stiff and vexed, he got sullenly to his feet and repacked the lunch kit. He reached for the Geiger counter, snapped on the current, took one step towards a distant rocky outcrop, and froze. The slight background noise had given way to a veritable roar, an electronic avalanche that could mean only one thing. He stood there, scrutinizing the grassy knoll and shaking his head in profound mystification. Frowning, he put down the counter. As he withdrew his hand, the frantic chatter quickly faded out. He waited half stooped, a blank look in his eyes. Suddenly they lit with doubting, half-fearful comprehension. Pat like he stalked the clicking instrument, holding one arm outstretched, gradually advancing the blistered palm. And the Geiger counter raved anew. Be careful what you wish, might well be the moral for this week's second story, in which a man's fondest dream is granted, only to turn out decidedly not what he had expected. Taken from the collection Omega, edited by Roger Elwood, copyright 1973, this is Swords of If-Then, by James Sutherland. For Alvin Moffat, the quintessence of Life As It Should Be was contained within a row of leather-bound volumes in the library's rare book room. Alvin worked one floor below, at the reference desk, but passed his spare moments upstairs savoring Le Morte d'Arthur, perhaps, or Orlando Furioso. When an influx of students kept him at the desk, during final examination weeks usually, he made do with a cheap edition of The Once and Future King and His Own Glowing Dreams. And though he admired the former's vision, in his heart Alvin felt the latter remained truest to the spirit of the old classics. One noontime, he came upon an nacreous sphere floating alongside the Song of Roland. Alvin Moffat? the sphere inquired briskly. Alvin Bergen Moffat? Distracted, Alvin nodded vaguely. The sphere bobbled. Excellent! I have journeyed far to meet with you. At this point, Alvin fully perceived he was being addressed by an altogether strange entity, flinched, and cried out in confusion, What? Who? Where? Fortunately, the sphere seemed to understand, and replied that it was no less than the Guardian of Continua coming to seek Alvin's assistance in a matter of desperate urgency. Whatever can I do? Aid the fair world of Ifthan, which presently lies in much danger. Alvin had never heard of ifthan so the Guardian added in a hurried to tones, I will construct a visual simulacrum of If-Than, adjusted to your senses. Observe, then, and quick. Around Alvin, the somehow familiar landscape of if took form. Here were green glades and forests. There were softly rolling meadows, and beyond a gleaming castle. A lone knight ventured from the raised portcullis and warily rode toward a monstrous dragon-like creature that was laying the countryside to waste and ruin. From a high event, a fair-haired woman of surpassing beauty called passionate encouragement to her hero as he spurred his mount near the dragon. The sword flashed under the golden sun, the scene faded mistily. As your eyes beheld, continued the sphere, if then, is besieged by those loathsome invaders. Our champions are powerless to resist the ever-advancing tide. Only a valiant outsider can be an equal to the unnatural foe. You want me? Assuredly. The sphere seemed to read Alvin's thoughts by concluding, Fear not. The earthly physique that you deem inadequate will be suitably rectified if you choose to accompany me. Now, will you accept this awesome challenge? It's everything I've ever read about, dreamed about, hoped for, Alvin thought. Fiercely daring to breathe, he decided. Where do I sign? Your word is proof enough of intent, Alvin (laughs) Moffat. Abruptly, the continuum slewed wildly. Then Alvin found himself standing in the selfsame meadow, beside the castle that he had glimpsed. The air was wonderfully fresh and hearty, and Alvin let out a happy yell. That quite suddenly ended, as he noticed that he had just exhaled orange flames. Looking down in mounting horror, he discovered that his skin had turned a staly magenta... His fingers had dwindled to jagged claws, and his legs were grotesque stumps. "'This isn't what I expected,' Alvin said angrily, lashing his heavy spiked tail about like a bullwhip. "'Careful with that thing,' Sphere said anxiously. "'Wait for the signal!' Crowd was beginning to gather along the Redivant, screaming at Alvin and making gestures. When a plumed knight of heroic proportions thundered out of the castle gateway, they shouted in ecstasy. The knight pointed his lance at Alvin and the crowd whooped with delirious anticipation. Made wretched by the turn of events, Alvin wanted to weep. Reptiles have no tear duct. All he could do was choke out a reproachful, Hey, I don't know what to think of this! Or of you! Think of me as your manager. Now, now listen good, kid," the Sphere told him in a hoarse and sweaty-sounding voice. When the gong sounds, I want you to really get in there and fight! Our third and final story this week details the account of a young apprentice to a dark magician and the fate that befalls his master when a fellow student makes a grievous mistake taken from the collection The New Lovecraft Circle, edited by Robert M. Price, copyright 1996. This is The Doom of Yakthub, by Lynn Carter. As a youth, I was apprenticed to the notorious Saracen wizard Yakthub, among many others, of whom the languid and dissolute Ibn Ghazul became my closest friend. Despite his voluptuous and immoral habits. At the behest of the Master, we learned the summoning up of evil things and conversed with ghouls in the rock tombs of Neb, and even partook of the unnamed feasts of Nitocris in the loathsome crypts beneath the Great Pyramid. We went down the secret stair to worship that which dwelleth in the black catacombs below the crumbling ruins of elder and ghoul haunted Memphis and in the noxious caverns of Nephrin Ka, in the sealed and unknown valley of Haddoth by the Nile, we performed such blasphemous rites, that even now my soul shuddereth to contemplate. Ever we begged of the master that he instruct us in the calling up of the great princes of the pit, the which he was fearful to do, saying that the lesser demons be easily satisfied with the red offering alone, having a horrid thirst for the blood of men. But that the Great Ones demand not less than the offering up of a living soul, save that ye have a certain elixir, compounded according to the forbidden books from the ichor of holy angels, the secret of which is known but to a certain great necromancer who dwelleth among the dead tombs of accursed and immemorial Babylon. For a time the master sated our lust for demonic knowledge with rites and horrors terrible to think upon, but ever and again we did beseech for that great secret whereof I have spoken, and at length he was persuaded and dispatched the youth Ibn Gazul to crumbling and antique Babylon with much gold to purchase from the necromancer the terrible elixir in time the youth returned therefrom, and bore with him, in a flask of precious Oracalc from dead Atlantis, the elixir. And we thus repaired to sealed and hidden Hadoth, where the master did that of which I dare not speak, and lo, a great thing rose up all and terrifying against the stars. Scarlet and wet and glistening was it, like a flayed, tormented thing, with eyes like black stars. Out it hovered burning cold like the dark wind that blows between the stars, and it stunk of the fetter of the pit. In a slobbering voice, the abomination demanded its price, and bore the flagon of Aurichalc to its snout in one scarlet claw, and snuffled thereat and then to her immeasurable horror howled forth a braying laughter, and hurled the flask from it, and caught up the master in one claw of horrible cold, and plucked and tore at him, all the while making the night hideous with terrible laughter. For a time, the hapless Yakthub squealed and flopped in the clutches of the claw, but then lay still and dangled therefrom, black and shriveled, as the laughing thing ripped at it until it raped forth the spirit of Yakthub, which it devoured in a certain manner which made my dreams hideous with nightmares for twenty years. We screamed and fled from the accursed gloom of Hadoth, where a scarlet thing howled and fed abominantly under the shuddering stars, all but the vile and horrid Ibn Ghazul that wretched voluptuary who had squandered the master's gold on the lusts of his flesh during his travels to Babylon, and had substituted naught but wine in place of the rare ichor. Him we never saw again, and to this day I quake with nameless terror at the thought of summoning forth the Great Ones from the pit, mindful of the horrible doom of the wizard Yakthu. Thank you for joining us for this episode of A Gate Beyond. Join us again in two weeks for more tales of the unusual and otherworldly, gathered from the farthest reaches of the human imagination. Until then, always go beyond. Produced and edited by Danny Atwell. A Gate Beyond is a production of Dark Charm Media. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.